If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, reading from verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. A number of years had uh, lapsed since Paul had founded the church in Corinth. Corinth was really his last stop on his second missionary journey, and he left Corinth along with Aquila and Priscilla, who had been working with him there founding the church in uh, Corinth. They left together, and he stopped very briefly in Ephesus. I'm not sure how long, but it was a brief visit, and uh, he undertook some sort of evangelistic work. And then he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and he himself traveled back to Antioch and then probably up to Jerusalem. And then after his visit in Jerusalem, reporting back to his home churches on, their, on his activity and how God had been using him, he traveled north again, turned left through, I guess, what we would call Syria and then Turkey. He visited the churches in South Galatia that, Galatia that he and Barnabas had planted on their first missionary trip, and then he wound his way back eventually to Ephesus. He stayed in Ephesus somewhere in the region of three years, and it's thought that he wrote this letter to the Corinthians towards the end of that three-year period in Ephesus. So, the church in Corinth had not been in, in existence for a long time. Somewhere in the territory of four years it had been in existence. Four years is not a long time, but long enough it would appear for this church to begin to fragment and for relationships within the church to begin to disintegrate and fall apart. It appears that a lady called Chloe and uh, her household had been informing Paul of what was happening in the church at Corinth. She'd been corresponding with the apostle, keeping him abreast with all that was happening. And as you think about Chloe, uh, you get the impression that she's not the kind of person that's 
involved in these divisions up to her ears, as it were. Instead, you get the impression that she was the kind of lady that was troubled, greatly disturbed by these divisions that had taken place within her home church. And her communication with the Apostle Paul was really her sending out an SOS to ask for his intervention, his help. He was the founder of the church. He was an apostle of Christ. Couldn't he do something? Couldn't he do anything to try and restore some kind of sanity to this church and the relationship of its members? She must have been both a wise Uh, spiritual and perceptive individual because uh, the information that she provided Paul with seems to have been comprehensive and it enabled him to get a clear picture of what was happening in the church. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, is really Paul's response to the communication that he has received from Chloe about the problems that were erupting in this church all manner of problems, not just the fragmentation of its members, but immorality. Uh, There were Christians, rich Christians, dragging poor Christians through court just to get their pound of flesh, even though it was crushing poor Christians. Their services were chaotic. They had become infatuated with some of the more spectacular gifts. And their services, whilst wonderful in many ways, had become somewhat chaotic. And Paul is writing to restore some kind of sanity uh, to this church uh, as he's received information from Chloe. What's interesting is uh, that at the beginning of this letter, the verses that Robin read for us this morning, is that that is actually not where Paul begins. He begins, first of all, by reminding them of the grace that they have received in Christ Jesus. He reminds them of how they've been enriched. They're an incredibly gifted church. He reminds them um, of the fact that Christ will sustain them or confirm them right to the end of their journey. That's where Paul begins his letter. And I find that significant because most of us, when we think about the problems that exist in churches and in missionary organizations, think only about the problems. The problems consume us. The problems become so big in our minds that we're not actually able to see beyond the problems. But here as Paul writes to this church in Corinth, he, does, he sees beyond the problems. He sees what God has done. He sees what God is doing. And he sees what God will yet do in the lives of the individuals that make up this church and in the church as as a whole. Part of the reason I think that he reminds them of the fact that they are what they are because of the grace of the Lord Jesus is because right from the beginning he wants them to become enraptured, consumed, focused on Jesus rather than on some of the high profile personalities that were involved maybe in the leadership of this church. He wants them to take their eyes off people like Apollos and Peter and even Paul himself. And he wants them to fix their gaze on Jesus. 
to put their hand in the hand of Jesus and go on with him until they breast the finish tape. That's what Paul wants them, he wants them to do. Wouldn't it be great if we in the Christian church were a little less caught up with celebrity preachers and uh, a little less caught up with high-profile personalities and a little bit more focused on Jesus? Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, if His name was the name that was on our lips every time someone poked us? that we would be consumed with Him, singing to Him, singing about Him, talking to Him, reading about Him, talking about Him, that, that we were focused on Jesus. I think that's what Paul wants this church to do. Some of you, uh, if you have younger children, will know what it's like to visit grandparents. And when you visit grandparents with your youngsters, uh, grandparents usually bring out all kinds of junk food like Smarties and all other, all manner of other gifts or sweets. And so then when you take them home in the evening and you rush, rustle something together for them, maybe even their professed favorite meal, chicken nuggets and chips with lots of red sauce, but they won't eat it. It's their professed favorite meal, but they won't eat it because they're so full of junk that they received at their grandma's house that they haven't got any room left for the thing that they profess to love most. That, I think, is what's the problem in Corinth. They are consumed with high-profile personalities, and they've taken their gaze and their, their eyes off Jesus, and Paul wants them to make a little bit more room for Jesus and a little less room for these individuals that they've become consumed with. Well, I, I want to try and break this passage into three sections if I can so that it's not just like a, a big blob on a plate so that you have got something that you can make some sense out of. So the first thing I want you to think about is just the appeal that he makes, the appeal that he makes to these Christians in Corinth. Secondly, the divisions that he discusses. And then thirdly, for a few minutes at the end, we'll think about some of the questions that he asks this church. So those are the three areas the appeal he makes, the, division, the divisions he discusses, and the questions he asks. So let's begin with the, the appeal that he makes. Verse 10, now I plead with you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind. Or sometimes that's translated, they speak the same words that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. So that is the essence of the appeal that he makes to these Corinthians. First of all, it's a plea for unity, isn't it? That's what he is pleading for to this church. He is pleading for unity. Now, the word that he uses here for plea or appeal or I plead with you, it's a fairly strong word. He isn't just saying, come on now, you should put aside your divisiveness and you should start getting on a little bit better. That would be a nice thing for you to do as Christians. That isn't the tenor, that isn't uh, the nature of, of, of what Paul is saying to these Corinthians. He is pleading with them. He is actually begging them to put aside their divisiveness and to embrace unity. Paul, of course, 
had a high view of the church. He had founded this church in Corinth. Uh, He had worked there for 18 months, uh, preaching the gospel, nurturing new converts. And he found the news of its disintegration into factions greatly disturbing. Their Their divisions were anything but helpful to the testimony of the church in a pagan city like Corinth. Because Corinth was a city that already had enough factions, thank you very much. This was a city that had factions and divisions written into its very, into its very social fabric. Corinth was filled with slaves who had been emancipated and were referred to as freedmen. And these slaves were striving to make a name for themselves. And there was a competitive kind of atmosphere in society around Corinth. As people tried to establish themselves. As they tried to outdo other people that were emancipated around the same time as them. Not only was this whole issue related to the emancipation of slaves. But Roman generals loved to retire to the colonies. There just wasn't enough room in the imperial city for all of these retired soldiers and these retired generals. And so they would retire to some of the colonies. And Corinth was a colony. And it was filled with retired Roman generals who had fought in the legions, who had led men into battle and who wanted everyone around them to know how powerful they had been and how fabulous they still were. Then there was philosophy, 50 different strains of philosophical thought identified in Corinth, just 50 miles west of Athens, the philosophical center of the world. And there were all kinds of philosophers that you could line up behind in Corinth. If you were looking for someone uh, to embrace, someone to support, you could find someone for sure in Corinth. And then there was the political structures, patrons and their clients, senators and their supporters. You eulogize me and I'll let you build a little shack on some corner of my property. But when you're in public, you've got to eulogize me, make make much of me. You've got to impress your friends with how important I am. That's Corinth. That's what Corinth society that's what the society in Corinth was like. And, and, And it was coming down with division and strife. And people were converted from this kind of background and walking into the Christian church, and they brought all of their divisiveness and their factionalism with them. People were walking into the church having been newly converted and they had no idea what group to belong to. Which of these cliques should I join? Should I join this group or or this group? Should I be part of the Apollos' supporters club or should I support Peter's club? Where should I go in the context of the church? Paul is pleading with them Because the unity of the church is at stake and the name of Christ is being defamed. And this is no dry, ordinary discourse. This this plea for unity is really a plea from the heart of a brother. That's how he describes himself in verse 10. A brother, brothers and sisters. This is a fellow member of the family of faith. And he is pleading for a sense of family to be prevalent amongst them. Not only does he plead as a 
family member, but he pleads in the name of Christ. The basis of his appeal to them for unity is Christ. We're united in Christ. We're united around Christ. We're united around the gospel of Christ. He pleads with them in the name of Christ. And of course, the significance of that is that he is an apostle. He was set apart and commissioned by Jesus. And so, as he writes to the Corinthian church, they're not just receiving a letter from Robin Sinserf, they're receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul, who was an ambassador of Christ, who was an, a, an apostle, a delegate of Christ. And it carried all of Christ's authority. Not only that, but Jesus is the one that prayed for unity. He prayed that his people would be one even as he and the Father is one. That's a high standard of unity, isn't it, to attain? He prayed that his people would be one even as he and the Father are one. So he's pleading for unity. The name of Christ is being defamed because the followers of Christ are divided. Disunity is a great tragedy in any church and in any Christian organization. It destroys the testimony and witness of the Lord's people in any given community, whether it's Corinth in the first century or it's Edinburgh in the 21st century. What Paul is saying is this, there ought not to be divisions based on race. The body of Christ is not divided on terms of race. There ought not to be divisions within the church based on social class or even education or postcode. This is the church. This is not the world. We're united in Christ. All of us are sinners transformed by the grace of God that came to us through Christ and in the cross of Christ. And what Paul is pleading for here is unity in Christ. Here's a second thing. Not only uh, is he is that the essence, but then how does it express itself, this, this uh, unity that he is pleading for? Verse 10b, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and that you have the same judgment. That you have the same mind and that you have the same judgment. The word perfect or perfectly could be translated mature. And uh, Paul is really asking the Christians in Corinth to grow up a little bit. Instead of wallowing in immaturity, he wants them to show a little bit of Christian maturity. Instead of behaving like little children, he wants them to behave like mature adults who are well-developed in the things of the faith, who understand what the church is, and who lay aside the divisiveness and the divisions of the world. He wants them to be mature. And he wants them to do that, first of all, by speaking the same words, or having the same mind, or if you like in the NIV, agree with one another in what you say. Maybe that pulls in the best of both. Agree with one another in what you say. The Corinthians were not speaking the same words. They were flaunting their divisions openly before a watching world. As the world listened to these Corinthian Christians, all they could hear was divisive talk and degrading remarks about other Christians 
and Christian leaders. There was no sense of oneness. And Paul wants them to have a single voice and a single message for a world that knows too much about quarrels and pluralism. Corinth is coming down with that kind of divisiveness. Paul wants them to be united. No such divisions should emanate from the Christian church. There ought not to be any striving for status or power. There should be no personality cults. There should be no rival teachers and opposing supporters. There ought not to be a culture of haves and have-nots. There needs to be a united voice from the church as people listen to us talk about each other, about our lives together. They should detect a sense of oneness in our conversation. We are a body after all. But the problem with the church at Corinth is that as people looked in, they couldn't see that it was a single body. Paul wants them to be perfectly joined together, having the same mind and the same judgment. Same mind and the same judgment. Now, I don't think that phrase is calling for uniformity. I don't think God expects us to be clones of each other. I'm a great believer in freedom of conscience. I believe with all of my heart that we should give people the freedom to think these things through for themselves. As Paul says to the Bereans, go you and search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. I tell students constantly, you don't have to dot all my I's and cross all my T's. I want you to think for yourselves. Think this through for yourselves. I don't think this is calling for uniformity whereby if one person nods their head, everybody in the whole church has to nod their head at the same time. This isn't calling for uniformity. This is calling for unity in the gospel. That's what this is calling for. Unity around Christ. Worldly philosophers and their students may battle it out tooth and nail in the context of the world, but not so in the church. We are workers together with Christ, and we're united in the same gospel. The trouble with Corinth is the fact that people couldn't see that they were united. And the question for us to wrestle with in the 21st century is, as people listen to us internally, can they see that we are one, that we view these people that we sit beside Sunday by Sunday as our brothers and sisters in the family of faith? that the folks who meet at Nidri Community Church and all of the other evangelical churches, as they listen to us talk about them and they us, do they have a sense that we are in this together, united around the gospel? Here's the second thing. The divisions he discusses, he goes straight to it and he talks about the divisions that exist in this church. And He mentions, first of all, their teachers, and then he talks a little bit about their baptisms. But first of all, their teachers. There is a group in the church at Corinth who say, I am of Paul. I am of Paul. Now, Paul founded the church in Corinth. He was the instrument that God used to bring many of them to faith in Christ. Uh, He had lived there for 18 months. He had nurtured them in the things of the faith. And uh, it's easy to see that he would have a special place in their hearts. 
I'm sure if God used somebody in your life to bring you to the cross and to bring you to faith in Christ, that person is someone that you cherish. It's someone that you hold dear in your heart. And none of that is wrong or unexpected. But the problem in Corinth is that things had developed to such an extent that everyone else was second rate in comparison to Paul. Now, Paul has moved on. He's now living in Ephesus, church planting in Ephesus. Three years have passed, but there's a group of people in the church at Corinth who are living in the euphoria of the good old days. When Paul was here, you wouldn't have got away with this. When Paul was here, this was how he did it. And there was no one quite like the Apostle Paul. I guess a modern day example of that is when a church calls a new minister. And the new minister could have a halo above his head and he could wear golden shoes into the pulpit. He would never quite be as good as the old minister. And that's exactly what was playing out in Corinth. No one was like Paul. Then there was another group of people, and they were supporters of a man called Apollos. Uh, We're introduced to Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. He came from the city of Alexandria in North Africa. Alexandria, a huge Jewish population, great Mediterranean university city, uh, leagues above the likes of Tarsus, which also had a university, but Alexandria was the Oxford or the Harvard of the ancient world. And Apollos came from there, and people loved him. Acts 18.24 tells us that he was a very articulate individual. He had a, a, a finely tuned mind. He had an exceptional ability to expound the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and after a conversation with Aquila and Priscilla... He became a very powerful preacher of the gospel. And at some point, he had shown up in Corinth, and he was preaching in Corinth, and people loved him, just loved him. He intellectualized the gospel. He was the John Lennox of the first century. He would wax eloquently and tickle their ears with such oratory skills as they had never heard before. And some people would only come to church when Apollos was preaching. I'm not coming to church if Paul is preaching uncultured, unsophisticated, uncouth in comparison with the eloquent Apollos. But when a group of Christians in a church decide to take their teaching from one individual, one chosen guru, then it's not long before division is knocking at the door. Then there was a third faction in the church at Corinth known as the Peter faction. It's generally believed that uh, Peter was the the champion of the Jewish contingent of the church. Peter himself had struggled with how much of his Judaic background to leave behind. Uh, At one point in Antioch, he had stopped eating at the same table as Gentiles because they didn't quite make the grade. And when Paul came back from his first missionary journey, he confronted Peter to to his face publicly. This is not on. If God has accepted them, so should we. 
There was a core gospel truth at stake, and, and Paul confronted him. And it's generally believed that Peter struggled a bit with how much of his Judaism, his Jewish background, to leave behind. And there was a group of Christians in the church at Corinth who loved to take their Christianity the way that Peter served it up. They loved the traditionalism. They loved the Jewish flavor that ran through it. And if Peter was here, you Gentile blow-ins wouldn't be sitting at the same table as us. You'd be sitting at another table over there somewhere. Because you don't quite meet the same grade as we, as we have reached. Then there was another faction in the church that's referred to as the Christ group. And initially you might be tempted to think, well, what's wrong with the Christ group? Nothing in a sense but there is at least indications that there was a super spiritual group in the church at Corinth. And that that is who Paul is referring to when he talks about the Christ group. These people who were just full of their own importance, didn't need any advice from any kind of spiritual leaders. They had a direct line to heaven. God told them everything that they needed to know personally. They didn't need any advice, any contribution. They were just the Jesus and me people. So there you have it. You've got four groups in this church. The sentimentalists with their nostalgic memories of Paul. The intellectuals who love to have their ears tickled with the eloquence of Apollos. And the traditionalists who claimed the support of Peter. And then there was the super spiritual who felt they were above and beyond everybody else. Now I don't think that these divisions were primarily theologically based. I don't think they were theologically based. I don't think core components of the gospel were at stake. I, I don't think that there was any big moral issue at stake in relation to these divisions, these factions. I think it was personality based. I think the divisions that exist in the church of Corinth uh, centered on subjective tastes. Oh, I, like my Christianity, served up the way Apollos serves it up. Oh, I like it the way Peter serves it up. And isn't that a danger that we face in the 21st century as we think about the Christian church and dividing it into factions? You've got, at least on so many different fronts, options to go in all kinds of directions. One of the most contentious issues has got to be music, hasn't it? There are those who love traditional hymns. And then there's those who love more contemporary pieces, more contemporary songs. And never shall the twain meet. Never. Liam Golliher tells a story about a man who went on a business trip to another end of the country. A Christian man went to church. And he came home to his wife and he said to his wife, Well, I was at church on Sunday and I went to church. Oh, she says, she went to church. And he says, we sang choruses there. Choruses? What's a chorus? Well, he says, in, my, in our church, we would sing, Mary, the cows have broken out of the meadow. But in a chorus, you sing, Mary, the cows have broken out of the meadow. Mary, the cows have broken out of the meadow. Mary, the cows have broken out of the meadow. You repeat that 20 times, that's a chorus. Oh, she says. He went on another, another business trip a few weeks later, came back and says, I was at church on Sunday and we sang hymns. Oh, she says, you sang hymns. What, what's a hymn? Well, she, he says, in our church we would sing, 
Mary, the cows have broken out of the meadow, but when you're singing a hymn, you sing, Oh Mary, my dearest Mary, these bovine creatures have left their normal place of pasture. They've crossed the boundary fence of the meadow and are now extracting grass grown on the rich dark soil in the small flat area alongside the river. You know, we need to look at ourselves in the Christian church at times. We really do. In the way that we divide ourselves over subjective things. Subjective things. Haven't we got the concept of a family a little bit a little bit out of sync? Because isn't there room in the Christian church for older people and younger people and middle-aged people? And isn't there room in the Christian church for people with different tastes in how they want to express themselves in worship? And don't I, as an old, almost 50-year-old, have a responsibility to accommodate my 13-year-old and 14-year-old and 15-year-old? And don't they have a responsibility to put up with me? Who wants to sing some older hymns that were written prior to the year 2000? Isn't there a responsibility for us to live in mutual respect? Aren't we a body? Do we really want to carve up the church in this kind of way around subjective tastes? Couldn't we live with each other? Couldn't we stand beside our teenagers and sing the praises of God? And sometimes it might be a little bit more in their bent and sometimes a little bit more in our bent. Well, here's the second thing. Not just their teachers, but their baptisms. Their party spirit was something that extended its tentacles into the realm of baptism. And he talks a lot about baptism. He says, I only baptized two of you, Crispus and Gaius. Oh no, I remember I, I also, the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, can't, I don't think I baptized any. He's trying to scratch his brain to find out, did I baptize anyone else when I was in Corinth? He hadn't been sent to baptize people. He'd been sent to preach the gospel. People involved in a settled ministry could carry on baptisms. His passion was to declare the mystery and the wonders and, and of the cross. But he, he says to them, I, I don't think I baptized any of you, because I think what was going on is that these factions were extending their tentacles into, I was baptized by Robin Sidser. Well, I was baptized by William Still. So what do you think of that? Or I was baptized by Peter Granger. The, the best of them all is, well, I was baptized in the River Jordan, so you're not going to beat that, are you? And, it, and it, a lot of it has to do with just, it, it's, it's really silly. Because what does it matter? What matters is that I declared my allegiance to Christ, that I, that I was baptized. That's the key thing, isn't it? That's what he wants them to see. That's why he's saying, and he'll ask them, were you baptized in my name a little bit later? And if we think we haven't got these kind of divisions and labels in the 21st century, we are fooling ourselves. You know, I see this all the time in, in Christian circles and in theological circles. I, I see it. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. I'm, I'm in the Reformed camp. Well, I'm Arminian, so don't talk to me because I'm over here. Or I'm dispensational. Well, I'm amillennial. So I can't have anything to do with you. Stay over there. And it comes down into other areas as you think about churches. Well, I'm in the Pro Trust Dick Lucas Club. 
Well, I'm more sort of Tim Chester, Steve Timmis sort of group. Well, I don't think any of you are great. I'm, I'm in the Paul Washer club. And, you know, on and on and on and on it goes. And, and uh, really, the, the point that I want to make is that aren't we united in Christ? You know, were you saved by John Calvin or John Owen or John MacArthur or John Piper or John Wesley? Weren't you saved by Jesus? Isn't he the one that you owe your allegiance to? We've just commemorated five, the, 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 the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 31st of October, Luther nails his 95 Thesis to the, the door of, of Wittenberg uh, Castle. After the Reformation, people started to call these reformers Lutherans. This is what Luther said. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. Listen to this. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ after my evil name? That's what Luther thought of factionalism and divisions in the Christian church. Finally, Paul asks them three questions. And the three questions are very powerful questions that take them right to the very heart of the gospel. The first question is this, is Christ divided? What a great question. Is Christ divided? Have I got a little piece of Jesus over here and you've got a different piece of Jesus over there? Does the Apollos group have a little part of Christ and then the Paul group have got a slightly different part of Christ? No, he lives in his fullness in all of us. I don't have part of Christ. Christ in his fullness lives in me and lives in you. So if we're at war with each other, if we dislike each other, it's not the Jesus in us that dislikes the Jesus in them. Because Christ is not divided. It's us. It's our sinful nature. And that's why Paul asks them this very powerful question. Is Christ divided? The answer is no, he's not divided. So why are we divided? Then secondly, he asks them, was Paul crucified for you? That's another great question. You're running around talking about Apollos and you'll only come to church if Apollos is preaching. Who was it that went bearing shame and scoffing rude and in your place condemned stood? Who was it that was wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities? Who paid the price of your peace with God? Who became sin? For you on that cursed tree so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Was it Paul? Was, was Apollos nailed to a cross on your behalf? No, it was Jesus. So then he's the one that you give your allegiance to. Not to Apollos and not to Paul. And not to any of the Johns that I mentioned. And the third question that he asks is, were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's another great question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This baptism became linked with, with sac the word sacramentum. A sacramentum is a, is a Roman oath that is taken. And uh, that's why baptism and the Lord's Supper became known as sacraments. Because in them we declare our allegiance to, to King Jesus. 
And a Roman soldier would, would enter into a sacramentum as he pledged allegiance to the Roman Empire and to the emperor. And Paul is writing to these Corinthians and he's saying to them, listen, who, who did you play, pledge your allegiance to when you were baptized? Was it Paul? No, it was Jesus. You declared your allegiance to Jesus. So why are you running around the church saying, I'm in this club? Oh, no, no, I'm over here in this club. There are no clubs in the Christian church. This is, this is the church. We're a family. Um, most of my children are here. One is missing. I'm going to say something that might embarrass them, but they'll get over it eventually. When they were younger, they used to fight a little bit. You wouldn't believe that looking at them sitting in a row, but they did. And I used to remind them, and I still remind them once in a while, listen, we're a family. We're a family. You've got the same father and mother. It's the same blood that runs through your veins. You're supposed to look out for each other at school. You're not supposed to ignore each other. You're supposed to care for each other. That's what families do. This is how families function. This is how a family operates. That's the point which Paul is making to the church at Corinth. Why are we so divided, he is asking. Why, are we, why all these factions exist? We're a family. We're united around the gospel. We've all come to faith in Christ. We've got the same heavenly Father. Why don't we start living as a family, functioning as a family, and living for each other and for Christ the way that we should